Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday, as well as the video version on YouTube as well, and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today's case is very unsettling. It's very skin crawling, and it definitely, again, is going to make you question who you can trust. So with that being said, we are talking today about the solved murder of Chris DeNoyer. So let's jump right on into it. Chris DeNoyer was born on December 26th, 1967 to his parents, Michael and Dale. Dale and Michael separated shortly after they had their two children. Chris had a sister named Cherie. And after the separation, both Michael and Dale went on to marry new spouses. Dale married a man named Jackson Viarta, and Michael moved on to marry a woman named Velma. Now, initially after the separation, Cherie moved in with her mother in Salinas, California, while Chris stayed with his father about two hours south of Salinas. So in the initial years of their separation, Chris and Cherie were living separately. Cherie was with her mom, Chris was with his dad, and that lasted all the way up until Chris was 15 years old when he ultimately moved up to Salinas to live with his mother, his sister, and Jackson. By this point, Jackson and Dale had had some children of their own, but Chris and Cherie were the eldest of the siblings, and all of the siblings were relatively close. Chris and Cherie were especially close, considering that they had been raised together, they had grown up together, they were full-blood siblings, and Chris and Cherie spent a lot of time babysitting their younger siblings, and it was something that they really enjoyed doing. It was fun for everyone, it was a great way for them to bond, and the younger siblings definitely looked up to Chris and Cherie. Chris was known for his cheerful personality. He was kind and he was protective over the ones that he loved. Now, he was described as a magnet to everyone around him. Chris had a charisma that drew people in. Chris loved riding his bike around the neighborhood with his best friend, Robert, and he also played football in high school and was very passionate about athletics. Now, Chris loved nothing more in this world than his dogs. He had two 
two dogs that were gifted to him by his stepfather, Jackson, in order to teach the kids responsibility. And from the beginning, Chris was head over heels for these dogs. These dogs were Chris's best friends. He looked forward to going home and seeing them after school every single day. He took such great care of the dogs. And Chris had a lot of dreams for his future that included these two dogs. His dream was after graduating high school to move to Big Sur, California with the two dogs to start the next chapter of his life. Chris strived for happiness. He strived to feel a sense of freedom and Big Sur really represented that to him and that is why he wanted to move there after he graduated and he wanted to take the dogs with him. Now, as you can imagine, for a 15-year-old to move in with his mom, sister, and stepfather, that had its own set of challenges. Chris was used to a very specific way of living when living with his father, and Jackson Vallarta ran a much stricter household. It was very militant, and Jackson was extremely demanding, especially over Chris and Cherie. He wasn't like that for the other children, but when it came to Chris and Cherie, he was very, very strict. Now, in June of 1983, Dale Jackson and the kids moved into a new home in Salinas, California. The home sat on 248 Navajo Drive, and everyone was very excited to move in. It was a large house. It had room for everyone. However, not everything was smooth sailing. Like I just mentioned, Jackson was very demanding when it came to Chris and Cherie, and he was also very possessive over the belongings that he had. He was possessive over pretty much everything in the house, and he liked to be in control at all times. Jackson had put multiple locks throughout the house that only he carried the key to. He put a lock on his and Dale's master bedroom. He put a lock on their closet, and he also put a lock on a cabinet in the garage. And again, he was the one who carried the keys at all times. And it wasn't that he just had the keys in a drawer or in a cupboard somewhere. Jackson kept the keys in his pocket at all times. And when he went to sleep, he kept the keys under his pillow to ensure that no one would take them. Along with that, he also put post-it notes around the house on different objects that he didn't want Chris and Cherie to touch. He would put a note that said, property of Jackson, do not touch on them. And those would be all over scattered throughout the house on different objects that Jackson claimed were his. And Jackson was not shy about his dislike for his stepchildren. In fact, he was very vocal about it. He would tell anyone that would listen that he hated Chris and Cherie. He would use the word hatred. He had hatred for his stepchildren and that he could not wait for them to get out of the house. He even went as far as telling Dale, quote, if you don't get these kids out of here, I will. I can't stand it anymore. Now, from Jackson's perspective, the reason that there was so much animosity is because he felt like Dale's children were rebellious. He felt like they were defiant. He felt like they didn't respect him. However, on the flip side, Chris and Cherie would hear the things that Jackson would say about them. He, They would hear about the awful and distasteful words that he would use towards them. And again, this is the man that married their mother. This is the man that they live in a house with. And they're living in a home 
with someone who is doing everything they can to get them out of there. And that was a very uncomfortable situation to be in. And the difference between Chris and Cherie is that Cherie was more closed off to the situation. She didn't speak up a lot about it. She didn't go head to head with Jackson. However, Chris, on the other hand, had no fear of standing up to Jackson. So as you can imagine, because of that, there were a lot of arguments. There were a lot of fights. There was a lot of tension rising in that house at all times, which just which just made for a very unsettling and unpleasant atmosphere in the household. And so because of that, Chris and Shuri tried to spend as much time outside of the home as possible. They too couldn't wait for the day that they could leave that house and never look back. Now for Chris specifically, Chris spent a lot of time with the people that he loved the most, and that was his best friend Robert, as well as his girlfriend Carlotta. As I mentioned earlier, Chris loved riding his bikes throughout the neighborhood with Robert. They would go to the corner store together, and every day after school, Chris and Robert would go to the payphone and call their girlfriends, and Chris just felt a sense of peace and happiness when spending time with Robert or when seeing his girlfriend Carlotta. Now, you might be sitting here wondering where Dale was in all of this. Clearly, there was so much hatred. There was so much tension and animosity in this house. Did Dale, who was the mother of these children ever try to step in or ever try to mend things between the family? And the answer is she did initially try. Dale did attempt to bring the family to counseling. They went to a family counselor to sit down and try to mend the issues that were within the family. However, after the first session, Jackson refused to go back. And from then on, there was really no attempt or effort to try and fix things. It just was how it was. Do you ever fantasize about who you'd be if you lived somewhere different? Maybe you'd surf if you lived by the beach. Or maybe if you lived in the city, you would live above a coffee shop and finally be able to write that novel you've always dreamed of. Or if you had a dishwasher, maybe you'd actually be able to start cooking and make a proper dinner at home. With over 1 million available units for rent on Apartments.com, the you abilities are endless. Apartments.com lets you narrow down exactly what you want and when you want it. And with their instant alert, you'll never miss out on seeing what could be your new perfect place. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place to live, whether that's an apartment, a townhome, or even a house, and they can help you find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So this now brings us to January 13th of 1984, and January 13th was actually a Friday. So you have Friday the 13th. Now on this particular day, Dale decided that she was going to take some of the younger kids out for the day for just some daytime activities. And that meant that Chris and Cherie were going to go to school and then come back later. While Dale did that, Chris and Cherie were out at school before they both returned home afterwards. Now, Cherie actually was busy that Friday night. However, Chris did go home for quite some time before he had a date with his girlfriend Carlotta that evening. Now, Jackson, as well, did have work that day. However, he and Chris were the only two at the house in the afternoon. 
Now, when Dale returned home, Chris was gone. She was under the assumption that he had gone out with either Robert or Carlotta that night. However, everything changed when at approximately 8.30 p.m., Dale received a knock on the front door. When Dale opened the door, she saw Carlotta standing in the doorway, asking where Chris was. She went on to explain that her and Chris had a date scheduled for that night. However, he never showed up. Now, Dale knew that Chris was not the type to randomly flake or bail on a date or any sort of plan, but especially with Carlotta. Him and Carlotta were head over heels in love for each other. They were 16 years old. It was that initial first love feeling, and both Carlotta and Dale knew that this was not like Chris. Now, ultimately, Dale had to tell Carlotta that Chris was not at the house, but not to worry because he should be showing up soon. And when he did, she was going to make sure that he called her. Now, when Dale asked Jackson if he had seen Chris, Jackson told her that the last time he saw Chris was at approximately 4.30 p.m. when he told Jackson that he was going to be going to the Alpha Beta store. I know Alpha Beta sounds like a fraternity, but in this case, it is a store. It was a corner store that him and Robert oftentimes went to. And according to Jackson, the last time he saw Chris was when Chris told him that he was going off to the store at 4.30 however he never came back. Now when Dale first heard this a wave of worry came over her because she was under the impression all this time that Chris was either with Robert or Carlotta. It wasn't uncommon for Chris to go off and hang out with his friends and not oftentimes check in with his mom. This was before the age of cell phones were in 1984 and Chris was a 16 year old boy who had a girlfriend. He had his group of friends. He played football. You know, he had a social life and along with that, his home life wasn't the most inviting either. So it wasn't unlike Chris to not check in with his mom. However, when Dale started to realize that no one knew where Chris was, she then walked across the street to where Chris's best friend, Robert, lived. So not only were Chris and Robert best friends, but they were also next door neighbors. So Dale walked across the street to talk to Robert. And when she got there, she had asked Robert if he had seen Chris, if he had heard from Chris. And Robert informed Dale that he hadn't seen Chris for at least a whole 24 hours. He hadn't seen him since the day before. Now, when Robert was getting this information from Dale, when Dale was telling Robert that no one could find Chris, Robert told Dale that Chris had began to mention the idea of running away from home, saying that the tensions in the house were too high, he wasn't getting along with Jackson, and he thought it would be better if he could start a life somewhere else. And when Robert was now hearing that Chris was all of a sudden gone and no one could get a hold of him, he started to wonder if Chris actually did what he said he was going to do, if Chris actually ran away from home. Now, after speaking to Carlotta and then Robert, Dale's next best move was to call Chris's biological father, Michael, who lived about two hours south of Salinas. And when she called Michael, she informed him that no one had seen or heard from Chris at all that night and asked if he was with Michael. However, Michael told Dale that he hadn't spoken or seen Chris in quite some time. However, to keep him updated on what was going on in the investigation, 
investigation. So after speaking to Michael is when Dale finally decided to call the police to file a missing persons report against Chris. Now, when police arrived to Dale and Jackson's home, they started speaking with both of them as well as Chris's friends, including his girlfriend, Carlotta. And when speaking to Carlotta, Carlotta could not grasp why Chris would ever try to run away because from the police's standpoint, they really were looking at this in the beginning as a runaway case. They thought Chris was just a defiant teenager because those were the types of words that were getting thrown around by Jackson and Dale saying that he was a rebellious teenager, he was a 16-year-old boy, and he probably just ran away. However, according to Carlotta, she knew that there was no way that Chris was going to up and leave without saying goodbye to her. They were so in love and they had plans for a future together. Now, on the other hand, when police spoke with Robert, Robert had a little bit of a different story. While he agreed that Carlotta and Chris had an amazing relationship and that Chris would not want to do anything to harm that relationship, he also stated that Chris was struggling to stay under the same roof as Dale and Jackson. Robert told police about what he thought could be the catalyst to all of this because police were wondering, why did Chris decide to just up and leave? What was the moment where he decided this was it? What was the motive? What was the catalyst? And according to Robert, shortly before Chris's disappearance, Chris came home from school one day and found both of his dogs, his beloved dogs that he was going to take to Big Sur with him that were his best friends. He found that both of his dogs had ingested rat poison that was kept in the garage. And unfortunately, both of them passed away. And as you can probably imagine, this situation was soul crushing for Chris. He was heartbroken. He was angry. He was upset. He didn't understand it. But one thing that really made Chris mad about this entire situation was the fact that the only person who had access to the rat poison was Jackson. Remember how I mentioned earlier that Jackson had put locks on the bedroom and the closet and on a cupboard in the garage? Well, the rat poison was kept in that cupboard in the garage that Jackson was the only one who had the keys to. And Chris really did start to believe after the deaths of his dogs that Jackson intentionally put out the rat poison for the dogs to ingest because there was no reason for the rat poison to be sitting out there. And Jackson was so detailed and specific and precise about making sure all of his belongings were locked up to make sure that no one had access to anything. And Chris thought that this was a way for Jackson to really just twist the knife at Chris. Jackson obviously did not like Chris. He did not like Dale's children. And Chris really did believe that this was Jackson's attempt on hurting him. Now, when police heard about this situation with the dogs and the rat poison, they really did also believe that this could have been the catalyst for Chris to run away. He could have finally had enough of what was going on in that house. He didn't want to deal with Jackson anymore, and he could have decided that that was it. And this whole theory gets strengthened when about a week later on January 19th, Dale and Jackson received a telegram. In the note, it says, quote, Mom, I'm fine. I'm on my way to Newport Beach. Sorry I had to leave so soon. I wish I could have stayed. I wish I could have continued to go to school there, but there were other circumstances that got in the way. 
Jackson was right in some ways. I'm sorry for being very rude to you. Please take care of things for me. I will either come for my things or send for them. Later, Chris. See you when I'm in the NFL. Now, when that telegram got delivered and Cherie, Chris's sister, got a hold of it and read it, she ended up calling Michael and told her about the telegram. Again, Michael and Chris were very close, but regardless, it didn't take a rocket scientist for anyone who knew Chris to understand that that was not something that Chris would say. The language that was used, the idea of even sending a telegram, Chris did not talk like that. The language, the wording, the verbiage, it just was not said in a way that Chris would talk. And there were multiple giveaways to that. The first one was the fact that Chris said, I'll see you when I'm in the NFL. Chris's dad, Michael, as well as his wife, Velma and Cherie were very thrown off about this NFL comment because never once in Chris's life had he stated that he wanted to go to the NFL, that he was planning on taking football into the professional realm, that it was anything outside of a high school activity. So the fact that he was so passively saying, see you when I'm in the NFL did not make sense. Along with that, the fact that Chris had stated that he was sorry for being rude to his mother, as well as stating that Jackson was right. This rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because Chris and Jackson had a very tumultuous relationship. They had a very heated relationship. There was a lot of tension there. And Chris was a 16-year-old kid. He wasn't going to run away from home because of Jackson and then write a telegram to send to his family saying that Jackson was right. It just simply was not going to happen. Chris never thought that Jackson was right when he lived there, and he certainly wouldn't have thought that Jackson was right after he ran away. So basing just everything off of this telegram, Cherie and Chris's dad, Michael, as well as Michael's side of the family, no one thought that this was actually sent from Chris. Now, even though everyone on Chris's dad's side of his family truly believed that this telegram did not come from Chris, the telegram was really all police needed to write this case off as a runaway case, a teenage runaway case. Once they saw the telegram, it was pretty much case closed and the investigation stopped. The police did not continue to look for Chris. They did not continue to worry about Chris. However, Dale, on the other hand, even though the police had halted their investigation, Dale was still actively looking for Chris. She was doing anything that she could. Anytime there were any possible sightings of Chris, she would always drive down to where the sighting was. She was passing out missing persons posters. She was stapling them onto telephone poles and giving them out to people who she thought could help her. She was constantly and actively looking for her son on a daily basis. But unfortunately, and ultimately, because the police had halted their investigation, this case did end up going cold. However, that was until the late 1990s. In 1996, Dale and Jackson and the children moved out of that home on Navajo Drive in Salinas, and they moved to a different house. However, when they moved out, obviously a new couple moved in, and that couple was named Eric and Diana Carbajal. So they ended up moving in September of 1995. 
Now, Eric and Diana lived in the house for about two and a half years before Eric decided to go down into the house's crawl space. Now, the entryway to the crawl space of this house was a door in the kitchen. So basically, to give you a visual of it, you had the kitchen and then you had the pantry and then the door to the crawl space was on the floor of the pantry. It was almost like a hidden door. You really wouldn't know it was there unless you knew it was there. And Eric had decided about two and a half years after living there that he had never really been down to the crawl space before. So he had gone into the crawl space and when he went down there, he found a tennis shoe. And this wasn't really uncommon because people oftentimes throw different objects in the crawl space. However, it was a little bit eerie and it was dark down there. There was no light and all he could really see was the outline of this shoe. And so he goes back up there, closes the doors to the crawl space and continues on with his day. Now, a little while later, Diana's sister comes into town and the three of them are hanging out at the house together. They're having a fun night, just enjoying their time. When Diana and Eric mention to the sister that there was a shoe found in the crawl space. Now, Diana and her sister ended up making a bet and the bet was that if the sister went down into the crawl space, and saw what the shoe was that Diana would give her $20. So they had this little bet going on. Now, of course, they're enjoying their time together. They're laughing, they're having fun. And Diana's sister says, no problem. She's going down into the crawl space. So they all gather around, they open the door and Diana's sister jumps into the crawl space. Again, it is pretty dark down there. However, because of the light in the house shining through, she's able to see the shoe. So her sister picks up the shoe. And when she does that, she realizes that this isn't just a shoe. This is a shoe that is connected to a human body. Now, immediately, Diana's sister freaks out. She runs back upstairs and authorities immediately arrived to the scene because obviously police were called. Now, at first, police did not know what they were dealing with because the body that was in the crawl space was completely skeletal at this point. It was just bones. And so they didn't really know what they were dealing with. However, when they took their flashlight down into the crawl space and shined their light, they were able to see the shallow grave and confirm that these were skeletal human remains. Now, the forensics team arrived shortly after that, and the remains were sent to the lab for analysis. The forensic examiners were able to conclude that there were two bullet holes present in the skull of the remains. One was in the back of the skull, and one was in the temple. Along with that, the skull was completely shattered and the teeth were knocked out. There were two fractured ribs that were consistent as being a result of the gunshot wound. And along with that, the forensics team was also able to find a bullet when sifting through the dirt of the crawl space. The bullet was sent off to the lab for forensic analysis and it was determined that the bullet was fired from a 6-inch 357 Magnum revolver. So obviously, this this is a huge shock to everyone. It is a shock to the police because they have no idea 
who the person under the house is. They don't have an identity. They don't have a name. However, it's also equally as shocking and disturbing for Diana and Eric, who have been living above a dead body for, at this point, about two and a half years. Now, police sit down with Eric and Diana, and that is when police get all of the baseline information from them. Again, Eric and Diana say that they've lived in the home for approximately two and a half years, and there has been nothing other than this finding that would ever give them a reason to think that anything like this could have been possible. However, when talking to police, coincidentally enough, Eric and Diana state that just several days days prior to this discovery, they received a letter in the mail from the Salinas Police Department. Now, the letter was directed to Jackson and Dale Viarta, and the letter, again, from the Salinas Police Department stated, quote, the Salinas Police Department would like to follow up on the missing persons case of Christopher DeNoyer, which was reported on January 13th, 1984. If you have any new information or a status update, please contact the Salinas Police Department, end quote. Now, it was just extremely coincidental that Eric and Diana received this letter just days before the remains were found, and the new detectives on this case were able to figure out that the reason that this letter was sent out in general was because the detectives were trying to sift through some unsolved missing persons cases, and that is why they reached out to Dale and Jackson. Now, at this point, they had a name, Christopher DeNoyer, and they did not know any of the background information that I had just told you at that point. However, because they had a name, they were able to get a hold of Chris's dental records. And through those dental records, they were able to confirm that the body underneath the house for all of those years was in fact Christopher DeNoyer. Now, based off of that information alone, that sends chills down my body because when you think about it, Chris's family is out looking for him, actively searching, actively following up on leads. And Chris was underneath the house the whole time. He was underneath the kitchen. His family was walking over him. His family was eating over him, all without knowing that his body was laying and decomposing right beneath them. Now, because Chris's body was found underneath his family home, this really narrowed down the list of suspects for police because this meant that someone in this house knew that Chris was underneath the house. Chris was 16 years old. He was 180 pounds. This meant that whoever put him in the crawl space really had to have the strength to do so, the strength to drag him across the floor, the strength to bury a shallow grave, and the strength to put his body in there and then clean up the aftermath. So now police wanted to understand the dynamic of this family and what Chris's family dynamic looked like, hoping it would give them a better understanding into Chris's life as a whole. They spoke with Carlotta and Cherie, who were both in utter shock about the discovery of Chris's body. And they also went on to describe the family household and the dynamic as full of tension and arguments. And they went into detail and described it with the information that I have given you throughout this 
this episode. Now, they stated that Jackson and Chris specifically had the most problems in the house because Jackson ran a very tight ship. He had a lot of rules for all of the children, but specifically for Chris and Cherie and did not tolerate any type of defiance or what he felt was disrespect. And so because of that, Chris and Jackson butted heads a lot and there was a lot of screaming. There was a lot of in each other's faces. And according to Carlotta and Cherie, Chris never really felt like the rules applied to him because he never felt like Jackson was a fatherly figure, like he was a mentor. He just saw Jackson as the guy who married his mom and he never wanted to live there. He would have preferred to kept living with his dad, someone who he had a genuinely good relationship with. But it just so happened that because of schooling and because of outside factors that he had to move back with his mom and he never had a good relationship with Jackson. And because he was 15, 16 when he moved in, it was hard for Chris to look at Jackson as an authoritative figure and someone who he needed to respect respect, especially because the rules that Jackson had put into place seemed so juvenile and seemed very inappropriate for the setting. Now, a big question that detectives had in this case, and they spoke to Cherie about it, was how did no one smell this decomposing body? We have heard time and time again from different detectives, from FBI, from investigators as a whole, that the smell of a decomposing body is one that you will never forget. It is one that you recognize right off the bat, and it is incredibly strong and overpowering. And the fact that Chris's body was laying underneath the house decomposing while everyone was above it, police didn't understand how no one could have smelt it. Now, according to Cherie, there was a strong, strong scent coming from below the house. However, again, according to her, there was a reason for it. Jackson told everyone in the house that Chris's pet snake had gotten loose and must have died somewhere in the home. And that is what he stated was the reason for the harsh smell. But again, for police, this snake story didn't make a lot of sense. We're not talking about a snake. We're talking about a decomposing human body. And they just didn't believe that the two smells would have been similar. So now police have spoken to Cherie and they move on to the next person in the family. They speak to Dale. Dale is brought in by police and is informed from investigators about what they found underneath the house, and Dale was in complete shock. She was overwhelmed with emotion, and she stated that while she truly believed that Chris ran away, there was always this hope from her that her son would come back, that she would be reunited again. However, with this new finding, it just came with a bunch more questions from police, including the question about the odor that would have been coming from the crime space. Now, according to Dale, she confirmed this story that Jackson was telling everyone, the story that a snake had gotten loose and died, and that was where the smell was coming from. Now, Dale did confirm that Jackson and Chris had a troubled relationship, that they never really got along. However, Dale was adamant about the fact that Jackson would have never hurt Chris and that he was simply just the disciplinarian of the house. Nothing more, nothing less. 
just the disciplinarian. And yeah, they might not have gotten along, but it would have never been taken that far. Now, while Dale was having her interview with the police, police also called Jackson in for an interview. Now, Jackson agreed to come in and sit down with the detectives. And when he did that, he told police the same story that Chris walked out of the house one day and just never came back. He went on to say that Chris was a troubled kid, a troubled 16-year-old. He was rebellious. He didn't listen. And that Jackson was just trying to set him straight and put him on the right path. But again, Chris was defiant and he refused to listen. Now, when police informed Jackson of their findings of Chris's body underneath the house, unlike Cherie and Carlotta and Dale, who were overcome with emotion and shock, Jackson was stone cold. He showed no emotion. It was like you could have told him that the sky was blue, that it was raining outside. He had no emotion when hearing that Chris's body was underneath the house for 14 years all that time. No emotion whatsoever. And along with that, when Jackson was told by police that everyone was saying that there was this snake that had gotten out and that that was the story that Jackson was telling everyone, Jackson adamantly denied this whole snake story. He said that he never claimed that there was a snake. He never smelled anything, which also raised red flags for police because how does everyone in this house smell an overcoming odor? And Jackson, coincidentally, is the only one who doesn't smell it. Now, what police did not tell Jackson during this interview is that while they were speaking to him, they also had a search warrant for his whole house. For everything. They had a search warrant and they were searching through his house as they spoke. And while they were walking throughout Jackson and Dale's home, they discovered a room that was piled with boxes and not like cardboard boxes, like filing boxes, boxes that you keep important information in. The boxes reached up to the ceiling. And when police went through the boxes, they were shocked to discover records upon records, starting from coincidentally when Chris disappeared. They found mailing records, they found phone records, they found newspaper articles. Everything was in these boxes. But what was most importantly found in these boxes was a receipt. And this receipt was from the telegram, the telegram that Chris sent his mom a week after he disappeared. The telegram was billed by Western Union to Jackson Byarta. And not only that, while they were searching throughout the home, they discovered Jackson's 357 revolver, the same type of gun that was used to kill Chris. They also found boxes upon boxes of ammunition that were sent off for testing, and they were able to confirm that the boxes of bullets found in Jackson's home were the same bullets used to kill Chris, and along with that, they also had the same lead. So with this new discovery, police knew. It was all confirmed. They had the physical evidence. They had the bill from the telegram because the telegram showed Jackson was the one who ordered the telegram and they also have the gun. They have the gun. So with that, that was enough evidence to go in and arrest Jackson. Now they had to release him from the original interview that they had because at that point they didn't have enough evidence. However, now with the confirmation of the gun from the lab, they were able to go in and arrest him. And they did that while he was working. 
He was working for a phone carrier business at the time, and he was making house calls, so he was driving this van, and police pulled the van over and instructed Jackson to get out of the car. Now, when Jackson got out of the car, he was instructed to walk backwards with his hands above his head, and strangely enough, while he was doing that, instead of continuing to walk backwards, Jackson opened the trunk of the car and jumped in. Now, immediately, as you can imagine, police were confused. They didn't know what Jackson was doing in the trunk. However, he quickly appeared with a traffic cone. He placed the traffic cone on the left rear tire of the van because apparently that is protocol when you're working. If you get out of the van, you have to place the cone on the left rear tire. And police thought it was strange that he was even thinking about that while getting arrested for his stepson's murder. However, I digress. So Jackson is placed under arrest, and similar to his original interview, he has no emotion whatsoever when being arrested for murder. So then in May of 1999, about 15 years after Chris's murder, Jackson Vallarta was charged with the murder of Chris DeNoyer. Now Jackson pled not guilty, however, the prosecutors theorized that after a strenuous relationship between Jackson and Chris, Jackson decided one day while Dale was gone with the rest of the children, to murder his stepson. Police believe that this happened in either one of two ways, and I'm interested to see how what you guys think. The first way is that Jackson and Chris got into an argument, and ultimately Jackson snapped, grabbed his gun, and shot Chris in the head. Now, the other theory is that Jackson saw an in or an out and took it. Jackson saw that Dale was gone with the kids, that him and Chris were the only two left in the house, and that is when he decided to shoot Chris to get rid of him. Because again, he was very vocal over the fact that he wanted the kids out of the house, that he wanted Chris and Cherie gone. And so why wouldn't he? Now, whichever theory you believe, police then theorized that Jackson took Chris's body and attempted to cover it up by placing him in the crawl space, cleaning the crime scene, and acting like Chris had just walked out of the house and never looked back. Now, Jackson had pled not guilty to the murder. However, during the trial, there were some very telling comments that Jackson made that really show his true colors. A coworker of Jackson's claimed that he told him, quote, Dale is so stupid. She's wasting all of her time looking for this punk when she should be taking care of me. She's so stupid and she's never going to find him, end quote. Now, I don't think that that quote needs any explanation from me. Now, during the trial, Jackson actually testified on his own behalf. He admitted that he did not like Chris and that he wanted him out of the house. He claimed that Chris was defiant. He used bad language. He was rebellious and he refused to follow the rules. Now, Jackson did admit that he would constantly change his bedroom locks. He admitted to changing them three times every six months to keep Chris from going in his bedroom. Now, there wasn't any evidence that showed that Chris was constantly trying to sneak into his mom and Jackson's bedroom. It more so just seemed like Jackson was paranoid and possessive. 
Now, Jackson claimed that on the day that Chris went missing on January 13th, that he himself was out at work all day and didn't come home until 9 p.m. And that is when he found Dale crying, saying that no one could find Chris. Now, this timeline goes against Dale and Jackson's original timeline because initially, Dale and Jackson both said that when Carlotta arrived at the house that night to ask where Chris was, both of them were at home. So not really sure where he was going with that. But again, I digress. Now, during his testimony, Jackson also denied ever telling Dale that Chris went to the Alpha Beta store, and he also adamantly denied ever sending that telegram. However, the jury was ultimately the one to decide, but surprisingly enough, the first trial actually ended in a mistrial, which as you can imagine was incredibly disappointing for the law enforcement and for Chris's family. However, there was a second trial, And after a day of deliberating, the jury found Jackson guilty of second-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 15 years to life, plus an additional two years for weapon use. So in total, he got 17 years to life in prison. So that, you guys, is the case of Chris DeNoyer. And again, this case just really creeps me out. It makes my skin crawl because just the thought of a loved one going missing and in reality, they're underneath the house the whole time while you're living with their killer, it's so unsettling. But I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. I'm also interested to hear and where you lie on how much Dale knew or didn't know. Do you think she had any idea or do you think that her mind just wouldn't let her go there? Do you think that she had some sort of clue? Do you think that she was kind of living in a little bit of delusion because she didn't want to accept it? I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say. So with that being said, let me know in the comments below. But that is all for me today, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and on YouTube as well for the video version. And you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.